Doctor, yes. Er, no. Ah, yes. Doctor, no. Ah, why Doctor, no is Doctor, yes. This is Dan Silvestri and Tom Pizzato with SpyMovieNavigator.com, the worldwide community of spy movie fans, spy movie podcasts, videos, and discussions. Dr. No, Ian Productions' first James Bond film based on Ian Fleming's sixth James Bond 007 novel, gets a big yes from moviegoers at the time of its release and has been a staple of Bond films ever since. Dr. No is Dr. Yes for spy movie fans and new spy movie fans who are focused on Bourne and Mission Impossible and maybe more recent Bond films with Pierce Brosnan and Daniel Craig would enjoy going back to the first James Bond film, Dr. No, to which we think they will also say yes. Here's a quick movie summary. There's a disappearance of a British agent and his secretary in Jamaica. Bond is sent to investigate. He discovers Dr. No and the plan to interfere with American missile launches. We learn about Spectre for the first time and all of the ensuing events. Now, when released in 1962, the U.S. and Soviet Union were in the Cold War, each country suspicious and in fear that the other might develop more nuclear weapons than the other, attain nuclear superiority, and strike first. And actually, if you remember back at that time, in, in school, we would do drills where we'd like hide under our desks. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, because that was going to s- save us from the nuclear fallout. Oh, yeah, uh, <laughs> right. Hide under our desks, hands yeah. over your head. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. Nuclear so, blast, you're okay. Yeah, so here, <laughs> here in the U.S., there was definitely a fear of what was going on with this Cold War. Absolutely. So this is what was really happening in the real world at the time. So selecting Dr. No as the first Fleming novel to turn into a film dealing with American missile launches was very topical at the time. Fear of intercontinental ballistic missiles raining down on your hometown was a real fear. The U.S. was behind in the space race as the Soviets continued to be steps ahead, but great distances between the countries offered some solace. Though Ian Fleming's Dr. No novel was written in 1958. Now, that, that, was, that was, what, a year after the Soviet Union launched uh, the first satellite, Sputnik, Sputnik, right, right. Yeah. yeah, which was which sent the U.S. into a tizzy because we were so far behind. The film began shooting in January 1962, a mere 10 months before the Cuban Missile Crisis. And that was, what, October 16th to the 28th in, the, in 1962. Exactly, right. So that was bringing the Cuban Missile Crisis, really, was, was bringing Soviet missiles with warheads to Cuba, just 90 miles from the U.S. coast. Now, keep in mind, Dr. No was released in the U.K. October 5th, 1962, less than two weeks before the Cuban Missile Crisis, and in the U.S. in May of 1963. Yeah, so the the real world actually serves as a backdrop to fuel the interest in the film, Dr. No, because nuclear war, missile development and deployment, and the ability to attack with missiles was top of mind. We're going to take a look at the Dr. No poster now and the theme song. For those listening to the podcast and who are not on our website, We will go over each of the scenes we have selected for Dr. No and describe what is happening and why it is key. In our first clip on the website, you'll see for Dr. No, it's one of the publicity posters. In fact, it's the main publicity poster that was used to promote the film and the theme song music associated with the in-production films. So you have a visual 
The poster is horizontal, bright yellow background, bold red letters, and has six figures on it. All the way to the left is Dr. No, kind of half off the poster. Then James Bond in his tux, of course, and the smoking gun with the silencer. As you move your eyes to the right, you see Honey Rider. Then a woman next to her for whom there is no consensus really who she is. Some say... She, yeah, I, I was gonna say you, some, you read some stuff. Yeah, so, some people say that it's it's the back of Honey Rider. I, mm-hmm. I'm not sure I'm buying it. That. Does, it doesn't look like it to me either. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and so we don't know exactly who she is. Then the next over is uh, Sylvia Trench in in Bond's shirt, and then Miss Taro in this beautiful dress. Now, interesting thing about that Miss Taro dress is she has it on in the movie. Later in the movie, when Honey Rider is in Doctor No's lair and she's right. going through the closet of clothes, that dress is hanging in that closet. Oh, that's pretty cool. All right. So, Ian Productions created a masterpiece and the James Bond franchise that, of course, has thrived for decades. And Doctor No is the first film they produced. We encourage you to take a look at the poster on our website, spymovienavigator.com. Now, one of our colleagues, Reno Lovison offered to do an analysis of the poster for us, and he sent us this piece, which we will cut to now. By 1962, when the film version of Dr. No was released, Ian Fleming's book featuring the Cold War secret agent and bon vivant, James Bond, are all the rage. The public was hot for a no-holds-barred film that would introduce a real flesh-and-blood Bond. The film poster for Dr. No features Bond as the dominant figure, slightly off-center with a smoking gun in one hand and the signature 60s symbol of cool, a cigarette, in the other, signifying a controlled, relaxed man of action. The bright yellow background is like intense sunshine, referring not only to the film's exotic tropical Jamaican locale, which is further depicted by the simple inset line drawing of palm trees, but is also the heat of passion, promised by the four sexy female figures, each in various stages of undress and striking provocative poses. The presumed title character of Dr. No is mysteriously cut in half and barely makes it onto the poster's left edge. It's clear that he's not the hero of this film, in spite of the name. Interestingly, the evil Dr. No is dressed in white, while Bond is in a very dark blue suit, which belies the standard code of cinema that the good guy always wears white while the villain is traditionally in black. This further signals the upside-down and unpredictable world of espionage, where things are not always what they seem and it's impossible to rely on your previous experiences. The bright red text shouts out what is possibly one of the shortest movie titles of all time, and announces the all-important fact that this is the first James Bond film. Note, Ian Fleming's name is also in red, making the point that this is based on his already well-known books and setting the stage for his branding empire. There are few films, particularly up to this time, that feature the book author's name. In most cases, you'll be lucky to find a short line in the credits that says something like, based on a book by so-and-so. Of course, there were exceptions, like various classics by Dickens or Shakespeare, or Margaret Mitchell's more recent blockbuster, Gone with the Wind. Saying that a film is based on a book is a signal that the film has an added level of sophistication and worthiness. It might be action-adventure, and it might be sexy, but it's based on literature. 
This is an important distinction in this time of changing morality of the 1960s and the changing morality in film. It might also be argued in this case that it's based on what may be considered a book in the realm of pulp fiction, and in that way promises to be a little more edgy, even forbidden. Men wanted to see sexy women on the big screen, and women wanted to be the desired, liberated, and strong women Fleming portrayed. It's important to note that though the women in this poster are being objectified sexually, they are not victims or being controlled in any way. The posture of the second figure from the right is a classic power pose. She's using her sexuality to lure you towards her, but she's not cowering or submissive. The next figure, almost dead center, is barely nude with her back towards you, but very much aware of who's behind her, and again is drawing you toward her and very much in control. The sexy two-piece white bikini worn by Ursula Andres will become the iconic symbol of the sexual revolution and was quite scandalous at the time. But again, notice her hip thrust out indicates that she is in charge of her body and the situation. The poster designer Mitchell Hooks manages to give the budding film star Sean Connery prominence, though his film credit is still dominated by the author Fleming. Note that he is billed as playing the part of 007 a man referred to as a number, a symbol of the nascent computer age. Is the number seven lucky? Maybe so. It's important to keep in mind that for many moviegoers, this poster may have been their first introduction to Bond, a man who would become a symbol of the Cold War era, a role model for the post-World War II modern male, and a soon-to-be movie icon. This is Reno Lovison for SpyMovieNavigator.com. We'd like to thank Reno for this detailed analysis of the main Dr. No publicity poster. Reno produces videos and podcasts on a variety of topics, and you can find them at renoweb.net. And we'd like to add a couple of more notes. Ian Fleming's novels in 1962 were experiencing a huge growth in popularity in the United States because President Kennedy at that time included the novel From Russia with Love as one of his favorite top ten novels. So interest in James Bond was high. And now here comes the movie, Dr. No. That's right. And we've got to remember that the movies aren't in the same order of the books. Right, right, right. So, you know, From Russia with Love came out in 1957. Right. Uh, Dr. No came out as a book in 1958. Right. The first film, however, was Dr. No. So we had the, the book interest or the novel interest in in James Bond uh, prior to these to these films coming out. Right. And Kennedy made it explode in the United States because of his uh, his putting From Russia With Love on the top ten list. Yep. That was pretty cool. Yep. In today's world, that would be like Oprah putting a book on her list. Yeah. On another note, in 1962, it was just before the, really the large explosion of the sexual revolution in the U.S. and the world. And countries like Ireland had problems with this poster that Reno just described and required changes to be made to the poster like putting a black dress on Honey Rider and covering up the other Bond girls on the poster one way or another. So there's a lot of different kind of things that were going on at the same time. Yeah, there's there's actually a nice book uh, entitled James Bond Movie Posters, the official 007 collection by Tony Normand. Uh, the edition we have goes from Dr. No to Die Another Day. Yeah, it's pretty cool. A lot of great posters in there. Perfect. You know Always what? check our main website at spymovienavigator.com, the worldwide community of spy movie fans. 
So Dr. No opens up with what is now an iconic and used in every Bond film scene where you've got some dots going across the screen. It then moves into Harry Saltzman and Albert R. Broccoli present. Now, Dan, there was something you found about those those dots going across. Why don't you talk about that? Well, there's a couple of things with the dots. There, It's kind of cool when you look at them in a different way. One is they could be bullet holes. Of course, James Bond is all about guns and danger and everything else but it's also when you see the two of them coming across the street screen it's like the double o in 007 so you'll see it over and over again in in bond movies to come for me in productions that you're going to see these two dots moving across the screen and i like to look at that and think hey that's the double o in 007 yep exactly exactly and then one of the one of those dots actually encircles the ampersand in the harry saltzman and albert r broccoli present in the screen in the doctor no right yeah now then the once the that comes up on the screen you get the more dots it then expands out and you've got the gun barrel scene and this is where bond comes out turns fires at the camera sure and then the gun barrel and everything goes red like blood dripping we're all familiar with that yeah so but this is actually the first time we see it first time and the, the kind of cool part about it is <laughs> you think it's James Bond, but actually it, you, you think it might be Sean Connery, but really it was Bob Simmons, uh, the, the stunt guy, who, yeah. who actually does this in this version of the film. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, in later films, they actually do bring Sean Connery back in to do the gun barrel scene, but the first one that they shot was actually done um, with Bob Simmons as Bond. Maurice Binder created this whole gun barrel scene and the whole sequence, the title sequence, and it's been in every Bond film since. Uh, Maurice Binder just died a couple of years ago, I think. Yep, he did. Three Blind Mice and the Death of Strangways. In the title sequence, which immediately follows the gun barrel sequence, we move into the the James Bond theme song playing, and we can definitely tell the era that we're here in in the '60s because we've got flashing flashing you know red circles, we've got flashing words, changing colors on the screen. It's very visually um, visually stunning, especially kind of marks it at the, t- the time era because that's kind of how they were doing things then yeah the doctor no for instance it's flashing on and off the screen in green purple red blue and the transition moves into those the, the colorful silhouettes and yeah, stuff exactly exactly i mean it, it starts out with the james bond theme song yeah. where traditional title stuff happens then we get into the dancing silhouettes and as, as that happens the music changes into more of a calypso song Ah, uh, yeah, more more uh, island music. Yeah, island music that's going on. So we've got these dancing silhouettes of these people, um, and the I, the island music's playing. You really get kind of transformed into that world, and then the last bit of silhouettes are these three blind guys uh, walking as a silhouette. That the movie then transitions into actually live action, uh-huh. where we actually move from the silhouette to actually seeing these three blind men. Yeah. So this title sequence is is very sixties. But it was kind of cool for the time. Yep, exactly. But it definitely places it in the 60s. Then we see the three blind mice walking the streets in Jamaica, and we don't know what to make of them. The tune Three Blind Mice is playing while we see them walking, which makes us think we should pay attention because these three blind mice are maybe important. We just assume they're a part of the scene and background figures, but yet there they are, and the camera spends a whole lot of time on them following them as they blindly make their way down the streets and finally to the Queen's Club, 
which is a private members only club. You know, pri- private clubs is something that Fleming was really into, right? I mean, in a lot of the books, he does things in private clubs. You think yeah. of Le Cercle at, at Le Ambassadeurs. I mean, all throughout his novels, he brings in private clubs, um, really showing high society. Yeah, he does. Perhaps they're members of the club, right? And then we're thinking, nah, they can't be. They're carrying tin cups for people to drop coins into them, so they can't afford to be members of this private club. This is the club where Strangways plays cards each evening. Then he leaves, we think, around 6 p.m., so he could do his reporting to uh, MI6 with his secretary at his place. Now, how do you get the 6 p.m., Dan? Because, I mean, in the movie, they never say what time it is. Yeah, I know. They, I, I don't think they do. Yeah, there was one shot where they cut to London. Right. right where they're they're going to receive the transmission right and there's a clock on the wall oh yeah the clock does say five after 12 yeah which we're, we're thinking maybe it's that's midnight which would be roughly six o'clock in, in jamaica jamaica okay in the evening sense. right so that's that's why we're thinking that so this again where strangways plays cards what he usually does is he goes off and does his report and then he comes back and continues playing cards with his uh fellows fellow uh, uh card players so here he is dressed in a nice white linen suit. The surroundings are peaceful, tranquil, elegant, high society. Makes us wish we had lives like that. That would be nice. Oh, wouldn't it? Yep. Sweet. These three blind mice play a critical role in the entire Dr. No story, as they are responsible for two very key deaths in the plot line and are the reason James Bond ends up in Jamaica. Here's the setup for the death of Strangways, the MI6 operative in Jamaica. So in the film, we see Strangways excuses himself, and he exits. It's his normal routine, but we don't know if the three blind men outside the club are routine. Strangways is walking towards his car. He has to pass these guys, and he takes some coins out and throws them into the cup of the first blind man. He's the one with the red hat on. And then he proceeds to open the door of his car, and when he turns and opens his car door, we find a great deal about these three blind men. All three of them turn and shoot Strangways with pistols equipped with silencers. No one else is around to see them. They grab his body and throw it into a hearse, which speeds around the corner driven by an accomplice. Yeah, yeah, we're going to see that hearse again in the movie, too. Yeah, we will, absolutely. In the next scene of this clip, you see Strangways' mailbox. Then the same three men break in, kill Strangways' secretary, and rummage through his files and take folders entitled Crab Key and Dr. No. The second clip we selected here goes into more detail of the secretary's murder. Keep in mind, Strangways is the MI6 operative in Jamaica and has been investigating Dr. No. Bond is now being called in to investigate the Strangways and secretary murders and to see if there's some connection between these, Dr. No, and the interference with the American missile launches. Yeah, so here you're going to get a better view of the Strangways place and more details of the, of the secretary murder. We'll see Strangway's house again as Bond investigates this location later in the film. So here we see his secretary, Mary Trueblood. She's getting setting up the call by saying W6N, W6N, calling G7W. Now G7W is in London. That's where we saw the clock on the wall. Yep, and, and actually, for those of you who uh, get into trivia games, yeah. um, you know, W6N and G7W, Pay attention to those because there's a lot of a lot of trivia stuff where that those kind of numbers come into play. Yeah. So these three blind men strike again and murder her, carrying her body off after retrieving the crab key and Doctor No files. Now, at, look at the when you're on our website and you're looking at the clip. Look at the 55 second mark. You'll see a framed photograph behind one of the three blind men in the background on a shelf. 
This will prove to be an invaluable lead when Bond investigates this location, a lead that will lead him to Quarrel, who plays a major role in the film. As an aside, the secretary, Mary Trueblood, is played by a local Jamaican, Dolores Keeter, who actually owned the building they used to shoot these scenes. Now, what, one other thing about the three blind mice or the three blind men um, is later in the film, we don't have a clip on this, it's a really short little thing, but when when Bond shows up at Strangways with the superintendent, they get out of the car and the superintendent looks backwards towards the street. And there's a tree there that's kind of obscuring it, but if you watch it, the three blind men are walking down the street. Ah, that's a so, good. And the look on the superintendent's face, it's like, well, was he in on this? Ah. You don't know. It's a little intriguing. Bond misses it totally because he's walking in. Ah. But this is something that happens in the background behind it. Interesting. Interesting. So, again, we see instantly Dr. No is going to be a captivating film with murder, intrigue, and mystery. These clips set up the rest of the movie as now Bond must investigate. Strangways, though dead, will play an important role in the film as Bond tries to put the pieces together. We'll see similar scenarios in Live and Let Die where Bond must investigate the murder of three agents and we see agents killed in the living daylights in Gibraltar, View to a Kill, Octopussy, and in more Bond films to come. We will see similar scenarios in Mission Impossible and even the Bourne series. This opening scene with the three blind mice walking was shot on Harbor Street in downtown Kingston, Jamaica. Where Strangways is killed at Queen's Club is now Laguanya Club at 80 Knoxford Boulevard in Kingston, Jamaica. So if you're down in Jamaica, you could stop by and see where they actually shot these scenes. Bond. James Bond. The next clip on our website from the Dr. No movie is probably the most critical important scenes in the entire James Bond 007 franchise. The interaction between Sylvia Trench in red and James Bond at the Baccarat table at Le Cercle at Les Ambassadeurs in London sets up the entire Bond, James Bond scenario in the films. This is it. This is the very first time in film history that Bond actually says his name like this. And Sylvia Trench also is truly the first Bond girl. So this clip is one of the most important clips in any James Bond 007 film. This is the scene where he receives word that he must leave and head to Jamaica to investigate the deaths of J Branch MI6 members. The Circle at Les Ambassadors is the casino that Bond is in. We visited Les Ambassadors in London when Tom and I were there not too long ago. We couldn't get into the club as it's a private club, but the security guards were nice enough to let us look around. We actually got to the doorway, stood up on the stairs, uh, the awning, the sign, which was the establishing shot for the scene in Dr. No. It's a very cool building. Uh, it was very nice. Uh, it felt great to be on the steps of Les Ambassador, uh, knowing what an important role it played in the Bond film. Of course, the inside was filmed elsewhere probably when they were uh, filming it. It was a great day. The entryway was elegant. It was Bond, and we were standing right there. And guess what? So was Fleming one time. Yep. Now, one thing is on the sign on the on it right now. They started in the movie. They they zoom in and it says Les Circles, mm-hmm. Les Ambassadors. Now it just says Les Ambassadors, London. Yes. Yes. Right. As an aside, Cubby Broccoli, who along with Harry Saltzman were the original producers of the Bond films, Cubby Broccoli set up a meeting once at Les Ambassadors for Fleming and Irving Allen to talk about maybe turning the Fleming Bond novels into movies. This was before Harry Saltzman and Cubby Broccoli were were teamed up. Allen was not impressed, and he told Fleming the stories weren't even good enough for television. (laughs) So we were standing uh, in the doorway where Fleming walked through for this meeting. 
take a look on YouTube at the Dr. No documentary. That's what it's called. It's a very detailed story on how Bond got to the movies, written and directed by John Cork. It's really a great piece. We see Bond here as cool and elegant. Again, in the Dr. No documentary by Cork, it comes out that a stylistic decision was made by Terrence Young and the writers to take the elegance, wit, and sophistication of Fleming's writing and infuse James Bond with those characteristics. And forever, Bond is cool, elegant, witty, and sophisticated. Check the documentary out. We have links on our website to it. Again, it's called Dr. No Documentary by John Cork. And now we're going to theoretically step inside, ladies ambassador. This scene is exceptional. We see this fancy club. We, we see people sitting at the Chemin de Four table. They're meticulously dressed. We see a beautiful lady in red and several others sitting around the table enjoying this aspect of their high lives. And there's a gentleman across the table from the lady in red in a tux. You only see his sleeves, his hands, his chest. She's losing and he is winning. Who are they? Will their lives entwine? When she loses more money, she asks the house to cover. Then she writes a check out for more money. At which point the gentleman in the tux across from her says, I admire your courage, miss. To which he replies, Trench, Sylvia Trench. I admire your luck, mister. To which the gentleman in the tux replies coolly while lighting a cigarette. Bond. James Bond. This is the first time in Bond movies we see Bond and hear the famous line, Bond, James Bond, that we are now set up for hearing for all time. Who in this world does not know that line? Bond, James Bond. From this scene, we know absolutely Sylvia Trench will be the first Bond girl. How do we know that Sylvia Trench will become the first Bond girl? Because of several overlooked clues that she gives us in this scene. Want to know what to look for? Well, let's take a look together right here right now. Let's talk about the Bond girl for a minute. All right. So this is actually something where we see it in every Bond film. There's generally three different types of, of Bond girls in the films. There's the lover girl, which is what Sylvia Trench ends up being. There's the bad, evil woman in it as well. And then finally, you've got that strong woman who helps Bond out or at least works with him on whatever mission he he's on yeah sometimes those evil women they see the light because of bond and they they switch allegiances yeah <laughs> but it's the, the the three the three main types of women are there in these films at least those three roles are there mm-hmm. and so how do we know that sylvia trench is going to be the first bond girl well there's several overlooked clues we think in this scene that she gives us that will tell us first When she is shown losing for the first time, she raises both eyebrows, which is often a sign of surprise, which could be pleasant or not, or a sign of acceptance, like when you see a friend and they smile, their eyebrows go up. But watch her face closely the entire scene. She just lost a bond, so raising her eyebrows is certainly acknowledging the other person, drawing attention to herself. As her eyes are in full view and opened wider, it's almost like saying hello, like sending a signal from a distance directed at your target. And here she parts her lips while doing this, a sign of sexual submissiveness, which is very important here. She loses again, and again she raises both eyebrows. She says, I need another thousand. Again, opening up the bond, 
almost surrendering to him. And now here's a big clue. We've been watching her eyebrows closely. When Bond says to her, I admire your courage, miss, and she says, Trench, Sylvia Trench, she has her head downwards and her eyes upwards, which is a submissive eye expression. She then says to him, I admire your luck, Mr. Right here is the secret clue. She raises only one eyebrow, her right eyebrow. That's often a sign of interest in the person you are talking to, maybe even submissiveness as you're looking for attention, and it's a sign of less aggressiveness. But it can also be a sign of power. She just said, I admire your luck, mister. It may also mean, I want your name now. But definitely, it's a sign of opening up to that person. And here she tells us, she will be the first Bond girl. James Bond girl. And you'll notice later in the film, on Crab Key, when Bond sees Honey Rider walking out of the water, he looks at her, he raises his left eyebrow. So yes, she will be the Bond girl. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Getting to Walter PPK. Bond fans know that often Bond uses a Walter PPK pistol as his main weapon. In Dr. No, we learn he was using a Beretta, and in this scene, M informs him that he will no longer use the Beretta, but a Walter PPK, which the CIA swears by. The person giving Bond the PPK in this scene is Major Boothroyd. In real life, Ian Fleming got a letter from a person named Jeffrey Boothroyd, a British gun collector and firearms expert, who was a fan of his work. He suggested to Fleming that a Beretta is not the right gun for Bond, and ultimately recommended the Walter PPK. Fleming, as he so often did, named Boothroyd in the movie after this real person. Sometimes people didn't like him naming the names and the characters in the book after them, but in this case he did, and the guy liked it. A Beretta with 25 caliber has far less stopping power than a Walter PPK, 32 caliber. Bond used a Beretta 418, which was really a problem for Bond in the book from Russia with Love, which was published the year before Dr. No was published, 1957 for From Russia with Love, and 1958 for Dr. No. In the movie Dr. No, it was a Beretta M1934, more than likely. Yeah, there's, there's actually some controversy, controversy around which has more stopping power. There's an argument that the Beretta M1934 9mm short round is better than the Walter PPK, which chambered a 7.65mm round. But if you own the Ultimate Edition of the James Bond 007 DVD sets, Mm -hmm. Volume 4 has Dr. No. On the Special Features Extra Disc, there's a a piece featuring Jeffrey Boothroyd setting the record straight on this. He actually prefers a 44 Ruger Magnum, but it's too large, too too large to carry in that shoulder holster, so he settles for the Walter. Yes. That's a great little clip. For the producers and writers, sticking to the Dr. No book decided to take the Beretta away from Bond in Dr. No, referring to an incident, the silencer or the gun of the Beretta catching on Bond's clothing, which almost got him killed in the novel From Russia with Love. That was published before Dr. No. But, of course, the movie... From Russia with Love came out the year after Dr. No. So Ian Productions and their staff took liberty with sequential incidents from the books as they moved them uh, wherever they wanted to in the movies. Not not always in order. Right, and not just with Dr. No. They do that throughout the series. Sure, yeah, absolutely. But they do it brilliantly, really. 
We've also noted in the beginning of this clip that M tells Bond he's going to Jamaica and that he will send the documents he needs to the airport in a destructor bag. Now, this is the first time we've actually seen in spy movies the use of a destructor bag. Does this sound familiar? Yeah. You know, in Mission Impossible, the TV series, which started in 1966, we all know that in that that TV show started that way, and in Mission Impossible movies, they started with this tape, or whatever the medium is, will self-destruct in five seconds. And this, the self-destructor bag, could be the origins of of what they did in Mission Impossible. It's unfortunately they didn't show Bond destroying the documents when he got to the airport. Yeah. Yeah, and this is the first Bond film. We're learning a lot about Bond. Note here that Bond says he uses the Beretta for 10 years. So there's a history we don't really know about. And now Bond has the weapon that we're all familiar with, the Walther PPK. And this is where and when he gets it. Yeah, we want to steer you to a great article written by David McCarr entitled The Guns of James Bond, Sean Connery. It's a terrific piece. He says here the gun Bond gets is actually a Walter PP, not a Walter PPK. This is a a very thorough article that has links to the guns used by the other actors who played Bond as well. Very detailed and full of great info. I would check it out. We'll have links to that again on our website, spymovienavigator.com. Bond arrives in Jamaica. Bond arrives in Jamaica via Pan American Airlines. He's still flying Pan American Airlines and licensed to kill when he goes to Key West in Florida in the U.S. You may remember when he's leaving Felix Leiter's wedding to Della, he's at the Key West airport and he walks up to the Pan America counter. Hey, I, you know, Tom, uh, Bond and I have a lot in common there. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, we got something in common at least. Yeah. What is that? Well, you know, when I flew to Jamaica, I was on Eastern Airlines. We landed in Miami first and the the pilot landed so hard he damaged the landing gear. An exit sign broke off from the ceiling and swung by this passenger's head right right next to me. That had to be pleasant. Oh, yeah. And we were delayed in Miami for several hours because the plane was grounded. So Bond and I flew on airlines to Jamaica that are no longer in business. Both ceased operations in 1991. So Bond and I, we got that going for us. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Well, when Bond lands in Jamaica, we gain insight into his thinking, questioning the situation, and generally being suspicious. We notice a woman photographer licking her flashbulb, a character watching from the balcony, and the driver who has come to get Bond. Now, the, fi- the, f- the photographer in this scene is Marguerite Lures. She was Miss Jamaica at the time. So licking the, light- the flashbulb, although it was a useful thing to do to make better contact with the, so- with the socket, it's also a, a sexual thing here. I mean, this beautiful woman in 1962, she's licking a flashbulb in a major motion picture. It was kind of cool. It was. Yeah. All right, back to the driver. The driver approaches Bond outside only after Bond gives up a taxi to two women well, who are I, trying to get that. I, I thought that was a little late. I mean, what what if what if Bond got in the cab and, and you know, told, just got in front of those two women and said, hey, I'm taking the cab. Yeah, what would the, could, what would the driver have done? Totally would have, changed the it film. Been, it would have been late. And it, <laughs> yeah. You would have missed this whole mission. Exactly. Uh-huh. Now, now, at least Bond's instincts tell him not to trust this driver, yeah. and he makes a call while, unbeknownst to him, Felix Leiter is watching him. Bond calls government house, and he finds from his government house contact that he did not send a driver. And so Bond figures maybe he can get some information from this driver. He gets in the back seat of this Chevy convertible, and they drive off. Lighter is trailing him um, with uh, Quarrel driving, but Bond does not know Lighter yet, 
and they try to lose lighter. They pull to the side, and then Bond gets the better of the driver. Now, the driver then takes cyanide instead of talking. Yeah, which is like, wow. Yeah, exactly. Just kind of like, oh, well, I don't want to say anything, so <laughs> here's some cyanide. Yeah. All right. Although this is a car chase, Bond isn't the one who's actually driving it, so it really can't be considered his first Bond chase. Right. I mean, it's an important scene. Car chase. Car, what did I say? <laughs> bond chase. Oh. But it's the same. <laughs> car, car chase. All right. So this this scene's important um, because we don't know Bond really. We don't know who Lighter is yet, and or if the driver of the convertible may have led Bond to info he needs for his mission. We're learning more and more about Bond's character toughness and focus for yeah. the first time in this scene and the death of this driver you know taking cyanide and everything it didn't bother bond at all he loaded him into the back seat of the of the convertible and he drives him to the government house equipping to the government house uh, personnel there sergeant make sure he doesn't get away which was like one of the first little yeah one of the first little quips that funny he little makes quip things yeah. he, that bond makes and so he's like yeah he, he was uh, unfazed by the death of this guy In keeping with the discussion of these where films are shot, the government house shown here is actually King's House on Hope Road in Kingston, Jamaica. Again, if you're there, you can see where they actually shot this. Bond goes in to the government house after having that, that quip, and he goes in, talks to the superintendent and to Pledell Smith. And it, they then, the superintendent and Bond, then go over to Strangway's house. And that's where we see the photo that we mentioned earlier that we come back to. It's a picture that's got Strangway with a, fish, with a big fish and another gentleman who happens to be Quarrel. Bond finds out about Quarrel, finds out he actually is a boatmaster, goes down to the harbor to find Quarrel. Quarrel's not all that cooperative with him, right? No. And so, then, so then Bond follows him to a bar. Um, and this scene then becomes where we learn more about Bond's dexterity and ability to fight. At the bar, he goes into a back room with Quarrel. He gets cornered. Now, Quarrel's played by John Kitzmiller, and it's a role we're going to talk a little bit about more later. He was great. Um, in, in this discussion. But Quarrel's got him kind of held down, and, and Pussfeller comes in, um, and he was the one who was the alligator wrestler who owns the club, and he was played by Lester Prendergast. Bond fights his way out of these guys and gets the better of both of them, throwing them into cases of red stripe beer. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Red stripe beer. Yeah. I, in Jamaica, we drank a lot of, we probably drank some of those cases of red stripe <laughs> yeah. beer. Uh, you, can't, you can't go to Jamaica without having a red no, stripe. No. Right? It, it's, it's an okay beer. It's an okay but beer. We but drank a lot of them in Jamaica. Well, they have a lot of it down there. Yeah. Right, so he throws, he, Bond throws Quarrel and Pussfeller into the red stripe and then Felix Leiter walks in behind Bond with a gun. For a moment, Bond thinks he's been outmaneuvered, and Felix introduces himself as an ally from the CIA. Because Bond went with the driver at the airport, Leiter and Quarrel were not sure of Bond's allegiances. Now they understand who he is. Yeah, yeah Felix Leiter, he plays a major role in, in, in many Bond films to come, and he's actually played by six different actors so far. Yep, there's... Um, the first appearance is Dr. No uh, and the first meeting with Bond. He's then played by Jack Lord, if, who you may remember he later did Hawaii Five-0. Then Sec Linder did him in Goldfinger. Rick Van Utter played him in Thunderball. Norman Burton in Diamonds Are Forever. And David Hedison in Live and Let Die. John Terry had the role in The Living Daylights, followed by David Hedison again in License to Kill. 
and then a great performance by Jeffrey Jeffrey Wright in Casino Royale, and again in Quantum of Solace. Yeah, I I think Jack Lord, Hedison, and Wright were were like hands down the best Felix Sliders. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Those guys were good. In fact, I I loved Hedison so much, I I have his autograph. I bought his autograph. I know you like to collect that stuff, so that's cool. Yeah. So there are rumors that maybe Jeffrey Wright will return for Bond 25. Oh, God, I hope he does. That would be be awesome. He was really good. Yeah, he really was. Bond's first car chase. We've come to expect car chases and virtually any other kind of chase in spy movies now, and especially in the Bond movies. Yeah, we really do. But in real life, this doesn't really happen very much. We've reached out to the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., in the United States, and we'll be going. We'll be doing a podcast uh, with them on on this very subject: the differences between what happens in spy movies versus what happens in the real world of spies. You mean in in real world spies, they don't go up into space like in Moonraker? <laughs> yeah, right. That too. So we're gonna we'll we'll do a podcast on that. So keep an eye out for that or an ear, really. In the meantime, there was a great article in on July thirty first in two thousand fifteen, uh, in online on vanity fair on this very subject entitled 14 ways spy movies are nothing like real life by julie miller and the curator of the museum said high-speed car chases only happen when the mission goes very very bad so he suggested that it's it's always better to blend in so despite real life in movies we now expect these car chases yeah here's james bond's first real car chase where he's driving and eluding pursuers He's driving his Lake, his Lake Blue English Sunbeam Alpine Series 2 on his way to Miss Taro's place. She's played by Zana Marshall. He's going there for some fun, but she's in on the plot to eliminate Bond. So on the exact route that Taro told him to go, he's pursued by another vehicle whose occupants are determined to kill Bond. This is the same hearse. This car is actually the same hearse that the three blind men loaded Strangways into after they killed him. So we can assume that this is the three blind men once again, and for the last time. Last time. Yeah. For spy movies, we see this concept, of course, repeated over and over again. Car chase scenes and other vehicle chase scenes, trains, helicopters, motorcycles, running. We, we see that in all of these different movies. Many more Bond films have them. Bourne has them. Um, in fact, in a 1936 movie I found called Secret Agent... There's British planes chasing a, cha- a train with German spies on it. So this is from 1936. And then there's other movies like Bullet and 68 and, and tons of other movies. The French, the French Connection. Oh, the French Connection you know, was huge with yeah. car chases. And there was actually one of the, one of the other first ones was uh, Buster Keaton in The General, where it's actually he's on a train being chased by another tra- train oh, wow. on the same track. <laughs> yeah. So... It's it's been around a while, but we like I said, we go all the way back to thirty six or Buster Keaton was like, I don't know what year that was. I don't remember. Real early, I think it was twenty nine, but I'm not sure. Yeah. All right. So fortunately, and as would be expected, Bond eludes his pursuers, and they crash off a cliff with what has become the fiery crash scene in many spy movies. Of course, in, in real life. Cars don't explode and catch fire in most crashes. No, no. Actually, the, the, I don't know if people are familiar with, in the U.S., there's a TV show called Mythbusters. And at one time, they, they kind of obviously bust, bust myths. You know, they, they look at things that should have been, might have been, that people think, oh, this looks going to happen or that's going to happen if this happens. 
And so these Mythbusters at one time fired bullets directly into the fuel tank of a car, and nothing happened. It's possible, but it's unlikely that the cars are going to burst into flames. Yeah, it happens in yeah. almost every one of these type of movies. We like to see it. Then. <laughs> All right, so so anyways, Miss Taro, you know, Bond shows up at her, at her door, and she's very surprised when he shows up, um, and she gets a phone call. She says she's going to hold him there for a couple hours, and they have some fun, mm-hmm. right? Bond f- told her that he had car trouble, and he had he took a taxi. That's why he didn't have his car there, but he wanted to go out, so he he's going to call for a car for her. She gets into that car and is taken off by the superintendent again, and we never see her again. After she goes out, Bond coolly awaits whomever it is who's going to show up and try to dispose of him. So here it is. The professor dies, and you've had your six. In this important clip, we see the very tough and dark nature of James Bond. Here, he's a cold-hearted killer, as he tricks Professor Dent into thinking he, Bond, is asleep in the bed. Or what does the Dent think? He doesn't really know that Miss Taro has been extracted from the premises. So, does he care if he kills Bond and Miss Taro? Yeah, if we remember, she tells him on the phone that she's going to keep Bond yeah. around for a couple hours. Yeah, so we don't we don't know if he, he maybe he doesn't care. You know, we we got to remember, of course, that he failed to kill Bond with with Bond with the tarantula, and Doctor No wants Bond dead. So with Miss Taro out of the way, but unbeknownst to Professor Dent, Dent comes in to Taro's house to kill Bond. While Bond is waiting for Professor Dent to arrive, he coolly waits playing cards. The scene is set. Bamboo room accents add to the exotic island feeling. Bond pours two drinks and removes his coat and puts it on the sofa with the drinks on the cocktail table. Maybe as if he and Miss Taro had been drinking together. The lighting is just perfect as you see the cards and the shadow of the ceiling fan rotating over the cards. He tosses the bedclothes on the floor, then assembles the pillows and sheets to make it appear someone was sleeping. Underneath the mango tree is playing, and underneath the moonlit sky is playing as he walks past the shutters with the moonlight beaming outside. Again, Terrence Young, the director, he's aware of the song's lyrics. The song by Monty Norman was sung by Diana Couplin. Here's some of the lyrics. Underneath the moonlit sky, me honey and I come sit hand in hand. Underneath the moonlit sky, me honey and I come make fairyland. And Bond is sitting hand in hand with his first love, his weapon and silencer, making fairyland a whole different world than what most ordinary people are used to. Here we see Bond in his world, him as an assassin. I love that. He's just sitting there, just playing cards coolly just waiting for whatever's going to happen knowing something's going to happen yeah so i mean you have the feeling this is a well-trained guy right he he hasn't used a lot of gadgets or other things he's just sitting there calmly waiting he doesn't actually know who's coming how many people are coming he doesn't he has no idea right but there he is then he hears someone coming the door opens the professor unloads his pistol into the figure in the bed and ban yells drop it professor and behind you he drops the weapon onto the bedclothes on the floor. Then we see Bond coolly waiting again, confronting him, talking calmly, 
He even sets his gun down and lights a cigarette while Dent tries to pull his gun back over to him by dragging his foot on the bedclothes. Yeah, I love how he's trying to yeah. sneak that past him. Yeah, like, you're not going to see this bond, right? <laughs> Holy cripe. <laughs> uh, so he, he succeeds, though. Dent pulls it over. He gets the gun. He picks it up, and boom, he aims it at Bond, pulls the trigger. But the pistol just clicks. Then Bond says coolly, that's a Smith & Wesson and you've had your six. And he shoots Dent, unarmed Dent. And then when he falls to the floor, Bond shoots him again, killing him. Now, actually, it, when they first shot that, they had Bond shoot him six times, just like oh, Dent yeah. had <laughs> shot six. Yeah. But the, they were worried about the reaction of, I mean, this is a pretty, you know, ice in the veins kind of a scene for Bond where he's just not phased by it's, anything. It's the first kill we and, see yeah, him make. I mean, just a total assassin. So they thought it was overkill, so they only show the two shots yeah. in the when they And I know there was it. some even, there was some controversy even with the two shots. It's like you shot him once and now you're gonna shoot him again. Wow. Yep. So the, here we see Bond though as an assassin and really that's kinda like how Fleming wrote it. Fleming once said about the character of Bond, he's a blunt instrument of the government. We'd like to steer you back to that great article written by David McCarr all about the guns of James Bond, Sean Connery. Again, we're, all this story about the PPK and everything else, and Jeffrey Boothroyd. In this scene, this guy McCarr claims that Bond kills Dent using a suppressed RN Browning model 1910N and not to Walter PPK. Yeah, there, there's actually a close-up that comes in of the gun. Oh, yeah. You can see it's not a Walter. Yeah, yeah. And, in fact, the silencer doesn't come off the way it's supposed to yeah yeah he well. mentions that too in the article yeah. he snaps it off as opposed to unscrewing yeah, it or ex yeah. exactly yeah and the, the other thing about the guns that i thought was interesting was bond says you've had your six now i've read two different things on this that the the smith and wesson that dent had was either a seven or an eight shooter really yeah, yeah. i haven't i've never heard of a smith and wesson with an eight but yeah yeah okay. but, that, but that would have been an interesting twist had bond thought there were only six yeah. and there weren't yeah <laughs> yeah that would have been bad oops yep but it all worked out miss tarot's house is in the mountains in the film it's a fictitious place in real life it was filmed at what is now the couple san sushi resort in ocos ochos rios it used to be called the grand lido san sushi hotel reportedly where the crew stayed while filming and we'll hear underneath the mango tree again honey rider and no i'm just looking Sylvia Trench was the first real Bond girl, and then you had Miss Tarot, who was the evil Bond girl. But Honey Rider, she's remembered as the first wow, wow Bond girl. I mean, she walks out of the waters at what's supposed to be Crab Key, which is really near Dunge River Falls in Jamaica in Dr. No. Ursula Andrus plays Honey Rider, and she set the standard in a very, very high bar for all Bond girls to come. This is a classic must-see scene. When Bond wakes up to Honey Rider singing Underneath the Mango Tree as she steps out of the ocean, which has become one of the most famous scenes in any movie, he raises his eyebrow up, like we talked about earlier. Yeah, we mentioned that earlier. And he starts singing the song, too. Because he's thinking, wow, you're yeah. going to be a Bond girl. <laughs> you're going to be a Bond girl. So he starts singing, too, and she notices him, and she asks what he's doing there, and she asks if he's also looking for shells like she is, to which Bond quips, no, 
I'm just looking. I love, I love that. that. That's a I great do. line. No, I'm just looking. <laughs> I'm just looking. Yeah. We've been to Dunn's River Falls in Jamaica, and we've climbed the falls. It's a tourist attraction now and very, very crowded and busy, but it's still worth the visit. Climbing the falls, it's maybe 180 feet from the shore to the top. It's tricky, requires your guide and a help of a lot of people that you don't know that are in your group who help hold you and pull you up and so on. It's slippery. It could be dangerous, but it was fun to do. And to think, this is in Dr. No. It adds to the thrill knowing that Ursula Andres and Sean Connery playing Honey Ryder and James Bond were just steps away. Now, if you actually are taking a cruise that stops in Jamaica, there will be an excursion to Dunn's River Falls. It's a very, very popular cruise excursion. Yeah, and you should do it. If you're a Bond fan, hey, do it. Go there. Even if you don't climb the falls, go see them. They filmed here and on Laughing Waters Beach which used to be a private section of Roaring Falls. We're back here looking at Honey Rider, and she's a very strong woman. When Bond says, I promise not to steal your shells, she quips, I promise you, you won't either. Yeah, that's a great line. Yeah, she's just, I'm in charge here. She wields her knife that was held on her side by a wide belt. Yeah. Now, in the original manuscript, which we examined on our trip down to the Lilly Library at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana, Honey Rider, she gets out of the ocean to of uh, the shore, and she's wearing just the belt and the knife. Yeah. Probably Why couldn't w- they do it that way? Probably wasn't going to fly in 1962 uh, on this movie, especially as we said earlier with even the poster in Ireland. They made them put clothes on uh, Ursula Andres uh, as Honey Rider, and they didn't want to see all that skin. So in 62, wasn't going to fly her walking out with just the knife and the belt, but that would have been kind of nice. Yeah, but, you know, that bikini worked really well, too. Yeah, it did. It did. Uh, Like Tom mentioned, we went to the Lilly Library at Indiana University. They own 11 of the original James Bond manuscripts, and we'll have a podcast about that. It was very cool. We spent a day and a half looking at hundreds and hundreds of typewritten pages by Ian Fleming with hand written yeah he like wrote things where he scratched things out changed things added new paragraphs yeah so we'll have a whole podcast on that it was extremely fun and and cool and by the way tom mentioned the the uh bikini it it was a nice bikini Uh, yeah i'd say so yeah that white bikini that ursula andres was wearing in the movie she owned after the movie and on february 14 2001 she uh, sold it in an auction for the equivalent of $60,500. But the belt was included. Well, that's nice. <laughs> yeah. The Dragon runs on diesel engines. Now, they're on Crab Cree. We just talked about Honey Rider walking out of the water and Bond Singer for the first time, raising the eyebrow, like, Ooh, you're going to be a Bond girl. Quarles talked about the island legend of a fire-breathing dragon on Crab Cree, and that is why no locals want to venture to this island. They're afraid. After Bond and Coral arrive at Crab Key, after meeting Honey Rider, they find that they must do battle with this fire-breathing dragon. It's a dark scene in all respects, a night scene and a battle with the dragon operated by merciless killers, a tough scene for Quarrel, to be sure, in many ways. The dragon is, of course, some type of specially equipped vehicle outfitted with a flamethrower and run by some of Dr. No's henchmen. It's the intro of technology to do things that you need to do here. They just wanted to scare people away from Crab Key. And, you know, although it's kind of low-tech, really. Yeah, especially when you see it when it's not really dark. Yeah. 
On the scenes where it's really dark, you just see the eyes and the flame and the teeth. Yeah, but the flamethrower at night looks it looks pretty cool. Yeah, I mean it's it's it is that'd it be is menacing. Not. Yeah, of course later we see Doctor No's real technology interfering with the USA missile launches with a sophisticated nuclear facility and radio beam in the movie version, of course. In future Bond films and in virtually all spy movies after, we will see all kinds of technological gadgets, some to aid the spies on the good side some to aid the villains, the evil villains, on the bad side that they combat. But in Dr. No, there's really not a lot of gadgets for Bond to use. He's pretty much on his own, finding himself in certain situations and trying to figure his way out, kind of MacGyver-like. Yes, he has a new Walter PPK with a silencer. Yes, he uses a Geiger counter from sent from MI6. But what else? Just his wits and abilities and training as a good spy and actually part of that spy training if earlier earlier in the film he's in his hotel room and if you remember he pulls a hair out of his head oh yeah and puts it across the doors so that he could see if that hair is gone somebody opened the doors to the closet he puts the talcum powder on his his briefcase so he could see if somebody tampered and and opened up his briefcase so i mean those are spy techniques these aren't high-tech gadgets these are just how to be a good spy and to be aware of your surroundings yeah yeah and and that's how dr no was it wasn't really full of all these these gadgets that you're going to see later on with invisible cars and all 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 these other things that we're going to find out later so in our first glimpse of bond stepping off the pages of fleming's novels and into the movies we see a man who is well trained is suspicious of much in his surroundings and is ready to deal with whatever might come his way. Quarrel, he had really believed in this dragon. He's consumed in its flames and Bond and Honey Rider get captured. After he gets handcuffed, Bond goes back to look at Quarrel and the henchman says, sorry, we ain't got any flowers. When Bond walks over to Quarrel, it's a, it's a really revealing moment where we see Bond's more human side. It is. I, I love that moment. It's a short moment where he's looking down at Quarrel, but it shows this different aspect of Bond, this different dimension of Bond that we hadn't seen so far. He saw the cold killer. He throws a guy in the backseat of the car. He, he kills uh, Dent cold-heartedly. And here we see him walking over and looking at his buddy, you know, Quarrel, who became his buddy in Jamaica, and it's a good touching moment. Yep. And with that, we, we really learn with Quarrel's death that this spy business is a real brutal business. Yeah. I mean, Quarrel was a real likable character in this film, and it was, it was really sad to see him go. He was. I did some research on the name Quarrel because I thought, what an odd kind of name. I couldn't find it as a first name. I found it as a surname, pretty, pretty much probably meaning your family lived near a quarry at some point. Of course, in the dictionary, it's an argument. So if any of our listeners know, hey, shoot us an email, dan at spymovienavigator.com or tom at spymovienavigator.com. And one interesting aside about Quarrel as well is Dr. No was the sixth book that Fleming wrote, right? And Quarrel dies in Dr. No. However, right. in, in Live and Let Die, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's actually a character quarrel yeah so what does hollywood do in that situation or actually in this case the british hollywood do that in that situation productions was clever and they came up with quarrel jr yes quarrel's son in live and let die yeah cool the swamp where they filmed this scene is at falmouth about 40 miles west of ocho rios 
The Downfall of Dr. No. No and Bond go at it. Meet Dr. No and Spectre. After they're captured, James Bond and Honey Ryder are taken to Dr. No's lair, and Dr. No confronts Bond. Now, his, his lair is really cool. I mean, it's exquisitely detailed, and it's furnished with the finest things. There's a huge aquarium, artwork everywhere. There's rich, ornate carved wood furnishings, silver can- candelabra. There's the uh, crystal goblets. I mean, it's all the best of the best. Yeah, and we're going to see a lot more elaborate uh, lairs in the future in Bond films, but for the 1962, this was really a cool lair. Some really good work by Ken Adam. With the big aquarium in the background yeah. with the fish and everything. It was, yeah, with the, with the magnified fish. Yeah, the magnifying fish. Yep. Yeah, it was, it was cool. So we, we, we learn about Spectre for the first time from, from Dr. No. And we hear about this evil organization in many Eon production films to come. In fact, so many that one of them was actually titled Spectre. Now, Spectre stands for Special Executive for Counterintelligence Terrorism, Revenge, and Extortion. Now, the East and the West refused Dr. No's services, so he's out to show them how short-sighted they were. He lost both hands in a radiation accident. Now, in the film, that's different. What was in the no, film? Yeah, in the film, no, in the film, it was a, a radiation accident. In, in the book, uh, the Tongs, which was the, the that evil organization that he stole money from, uh, they cut off his hands. <laughs> uh, slightly <laughs> so, different interpretation yeah. there. Yeah. All right. So he has these metal hands, and they're very powerful. We see him crush a, a little sculpture there. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of great dialogue between Bond and Dr. No in this clip. Pay attention to all of the words. They have all been carefully crafted to deliver Dr. No's message. The West and the East will pay for not taking in his services. And Dr. No never fails. Joseph Weissman plays Dr. No, and he does it magnificently and convincingly. Yeah, he's, he's good. And he's really only in a couple of big scenes, and that's it right. in the whole movie. Pretty wild. But he's the evil guy yeah. and kind of sets the stage for the evil guy in f- in future moves. He does. Movies. Yeah. His just very calm presence there, it makes him even more evil. Yeah, more. Yeah, absolutely more sinister. So and Dr. No in, in here walks away from Bond after telling his henchman to soften him up. I he love wasn't that. Finished soften with him. him up a yeah, little. I wasn't finished with him. I don't know what he wanted to do with him, but he wanted to soften him up. He, he walks past the back of a portrait on an easel. To his left as he walks past in a previous scene when bond is walking up those same steps to sit at the dining table he stops for a moment to look at the portrait it's the duke of wellington simple right no no in actuality this portrait was stolen from the national gallery in london in august of 1961 before filming began in 19 in january of 62 for dr no and it was still missing when they filmed this scene brilliantly Ian Productions worked this real fact into the movie. Here, Dr. No has the portrait. In real life, it was recovered in 1965, as the culprit who was in possession of the stolen portrait had been sending letters demanding that 140,000 pounds be donated to a charity and that the person who stole it should not be prosecuted. Yeah, good luck with that, huh? Yeah, really. Eventually, the culprit gave up and sent a letter to the newspaper, the Daily Mirror, along with a left luggage ticket for new station in Birmingham. When the police went there, they found the missing portrait, but unframed. The portrait was brought to London and was returned to the National Gallery. Now, the only thing he actually was convicted of, I think, eventually was the frame was missing, and he got he got convicted for the frame missing. He got in trouble for yeah. the frame yeah, missing. Yeah, because the frame was missing. I think that's how it ended up. 
what, so. what, what I find fascinating in, in the real life thefts is what do these guys do with these pictures? Yeah. Right? You, you steal a famous work of art. Yeah. What are you going to do with it? I mean, right. how are you going to try to fence that off? Or in, in Dr. No's case, he's just got Perfect. it sitting there on an easel next to a staircase because yeah. he has to have the best things in Even life. Even villain's lair. Hey, why not? Yeah, yeah. No, we, we actually saw this picture, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. Tom and I went to London recently and we saw Goya's portrait of the Duke of Wellington safely hanging there on the wall in full view at the National Gallery. And it was framed. And it was framed. I don't know how they did it. <laughs> so when you head to the National Gallery in London, go see the Duke. Tell him we sent you. And also visit room number 34. Yeah, this is that's where Daniel Craig as Bond meets the new young quartermaster in Skyfall. Sitting on a bench in the gallery room, facing Turner's fighting Tamarair. It's this painting on the wall. We sat in the same location. Now, now they use different benches in the, in movie, the movie, right? But Bond and Q sat there in Skyfall, and we were sitting there. It was yeah, yeah. Really we actually cool. had someone take a picture of us sitting in the exact same uh, yeah. positions as as Bond and Q. Yeah, and if you go to the National Gallery, the whole gallery is fabulous. It Don't is. just go there for room thirty-four. It's actually it's a really good time. Oh, let's get back to the film. We were just talking about the National Gallery here, but right. let's talk about then the action in the film and our next clip on the website. Uh, Bond uh, escapes capture, and he overtakes one of Dr. No's workers. He takes the hazmat suit. Um, amazingly, Bond yeah. disrupts, you know, he gets he gets into this hazmat suit, so now you can't tell who he is. He disrupts the interference with the American missile launch. Now, a, Mer- a Mercury capsule launch, which was in 1962, was really happening. Mercury was the first astronaut program in the U.S. before Gemini and Apollo. And we remember that Apollo 11 was the first one to land on the moon. Right. Right. So Dr. No opens the secret radio beam antenna. You see it go up. Um, and then after increasing the radioactive danger level, um, re- if you remember, that's the thing where he's turning that wheel to the right. Bond is. Yeah, yeah. Bond is turning the wheel to the right, and that gauge moves over to where the thing says danger. danger. Right. Right. So he he moves it over there, and then in this scene, Dr. No and Bond get into a, a fight. And as a Dr. No film fan, you must see this turning point clip that pits the wits and strengths of Dr. No versus James Bond. The villain must go down, literally. The set is really believable. Again, Ken Adam. Yeah, he did a great job. Great set designer. Uh, Dr. No, played by Weissman, was excellent. And the doomed end of Dr. No tense. After Dr. No goes down, Bond tries to find Honey Ryder. He, try, he wants to save her, of course, and another revealing characteristic that we've come to see and know in many more Bond films. And he finds her shackled to a ramp with water rising quickly to drown her. He gets her free, and the beginning of the end is in sight. But yeah, actually, originally, it, originally they were supposed to use they were crabs. Gonna have crabs on Honey Rider <laughs> yeah, instead yeah, of yeah. this rising water. They were going to eat her alive or something. Yeah, yeah. and so they they brought in all these crabs. They were frozen, and they brought them in. And as they were coming back to life, they were really lethargic. There really wasn't much to film. Right. It wasn't like the birds and in, in Hitchcock's birds, right? I mean, these things just kind of sat there. So they had to come up with a new strategy, which was they were going to do this slow drowning death. Yeah. On the fly. Yeah, on the fly. That's pretty cool. Yep. Of course, this being the first Bond film, we wonder, hey, why not just kill Honey Rider? Why the slow death that might take, might might allow for escape? Why not just kill Bond with a gunshot? Yeah, that sounds to me too easy, right? Shoot him. How many times in these movies, Bond and others 
where there's some grand elaborate scheme. I mean, it's really, I mean, Austin Powers kind of makes fun of this, right? Yeah. We're going to do this grand elaborate scheme yeah. where just a gunshot would have just taken care of you right away. Yeah. And, you know, you see it in many, many other spy movies as well. So we'll last this forever. But we think, really, there is some kind of sense that could be made of this. These egomaniac, diabolical villains, they think that they're invincible. Uh, you remember Boris Grishenko in Goldeneye. I am invincible! And seconds right later, he, dies. he wasn't. <laughs> right before he died. Uh, and, you know, as invincible, they believe that they will get away with doing whatever they want to do and having an elaborate scheme to kill their arch villains, Bond, Ryder, whoever, is no big deal. And it pounds into their minds who's in charge, and it gives them time to think about it. So I think there there could you could you could you could believe you could have a willing suspension of disbelief that these villains would do something like this. Yeah, but for me, if I was going to be a villain, I'd take notice to what happens in all these films. <laughs> Just shoot them. <laughs> Just shoot them. <laughs> Bond and Honey Rider commandeer a small powerboat. They throw overboard the two men on the boat. They stop one from getting back on the boat just in the nick of time as the entire Dr. No complex explodes in glorious fashion. It's a, we're assuming all of Dr. No's workers are lost or will be captured and dealt with later. We see the explosions like this in many films. Oh, yeah. Right? We've come to expect the, the evil guy's place to blow up. And I mean, why do we expect it? Because it started here with Dr. Right here. Dr. No. Yeah. So then Bond and Honey, they're motoring away. And after a short while, Bond says they're out of fuel. That old chestnut. Yeah, we're out of gas. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no problem. So then Honey says, you know, what should they do next? And Bond says something like they can swim or uh, come here. And she does. Yeah, yeah. We see them, uh, what, in the License to Kill, the, the boat, the, the engines get shot, and the, the fuel is drained. In from Russia with Love. From Russia with Love, the yeah, same, thing. same thing. So you, we see this bit uh, quite a bit. <laughs> and in fact, as we continue talking about this, we're going to see something that's fairly familiar in the Bond films as well. Yes. So they're in this boat. They're out of, they're out of fuel. Bond says, come here. And then to the rescue, Felix Leiter with a small powerboat and an armed crew sees Bond and Honey's boat adrift. Yeah. He throws him a tow rope, and this begins a scene we'll see in many more Bond films. Bond and the Bond girl stranded somewhere only to be rescued and discovered that they're having um, some fun, fun, let's say. And then Bond releases the tow rope. He looks at Honey's eyes, and she's approving. Definitely. So for the first time, the ending of a Bond movie that we will become familiar with over and over the, over the next decades. Enjoy as we close out our first Bond film podcast. Dr. No is a big yes for all spy movie fans. Thanks for listening. This is Dan. And Tom. From SpyMovieNavigator.com. Be sure to visit our website, SpyMovieNavigator.com, the worldwide community of spy movie fans, spy movie podcasts, videos, discussions, and more.